Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege of opening God's Word with you this morning. And my iPad works this time. This is going to be even better. Go ahead and open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17 this morning. As you're turning there, I have a couple of announcements for you, more like an absolute onslaught of of announcements for you this morning. Uh, First of all, if you are a parent, we have been uh, letting our kids go down at the beginning, but before the service starts on um, these Sundays where we have programming downstairs for them. So if you uh, have not put them down there, but you would like to, then you may go ahead and take them down uh, now, and then you'll get to miss the rest of the announcements I'm about to run through. Uh, Next, you're all invited to a worship night with our youth on Wednesday uh, in room 112, that's downstairs all the way at the end of the hallway. That's our lower level chapel from 6.30 to 8 p.m. If you have any questions, you can contact Jesse, uh, Jesse at lakeviewfree.org. It's going to be a great worship night for Holy Wednesday. Next, we've got our Good Friday service this coming Friday. Join us for worship and communion uh, from 6 to 7 p.m. We'll be meeting in here. And um, yes, that's the night that we stop and remember the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. It's a, uh, one of my favorite services of the year to be a part of as we gather together to reflect on the death of Jesus and what that means for us, what good news that is for us, and why we would call that Good Friday instead of terrible, awful, no good Friday. Um, then finally, we've got, um, let's see, Easter Sunday next week. Our first service is at 8.30 a.m., then we're going to have breakfast together at 9.30 a.m., so a little bit of a difference in the schedule for the morning. So if you show up and hope for the 10 a.m. service, that won't be happening. The second service won't start until 10.45 a.m., so let me encourage you as second service folks to come a little bit early, 9.30 a.m., and join us for, for breakfast. And then finally, there's a congregational meeting on April 24th, immediately following the second service. That's our time when we'll get together and talk about the year ahead, what's coming up for us. We'll talk about budget for the year ahead. We'll also affirm new overseers for us here at Lakeview Church. So really exciting, riveting, awesome congregational meeting. It's going to be great. Uh, I know you guys can't wait for, for that. So that's all the announcements that I've got. So let's jump into, uh, into today's sermon. Today is known in the Christian tradition as Palm Sunday, as Wayne alluded to earlier. It's the day that we remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem to to much fanfare, right? The the crowds hailed him as the, the king who had come to deliver his people. They said this, Hosanna to the son of David, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's traditionally the Sunday when we would pause and ponder the implications that that reality has for us and the implications for us as people who live between the two different comings of Christ, right? So Christ came the first time as the the humble servant riding on a donkey, promising peace to us, and he will return again one day at the close of the age and set all things right. And here we are stuck in this, in this tension in between. And we, that has pretty significant implications for us this morning on how we live and how we think and how we love Jesus. The reality is that Jesus draws near to each one of us in this time between his comings. Even as we gather together this morning, we gather around the word, we gather in worship, we gather together in prayer. Jesus approaches and comes to us this morning by the power of his spirit. Only now, 
He's been vindicated and he reigns at the right hand of the Father. Jesus draws near to us today. So the big question that I want us to wrestle with and to ask of this passage on Palm Sunday is this, how should we receive King Jesus? And I don't mean this question as sort of a theological thing, like, oh, how do, how do we get Jesus? How do we get justified? How are we saved? How do we get Jesus on our side? Or, or whatever you want to you wanna talk about. I mean, I mean, how should we think about Jesus? Like when we look at these people in Matthew 21, Jesus comes riding in, and we think about the fact that Jesus approaches each one of us in his word this morning. How should we think about him? How should we feel about him? How should we go on living because we've now encountered him? Is anyone in here a first child? Anybody? It's a tough road, isn't it? Got a hard life. So when you're a first child, uh, everybody in the family is kind of figuring things out, right? Like the parents are figuring things out even though they may not act like it. I know for me, we learned a ton from our first child and we're still learning, right? When you're a parent, you're learning a lot from the first child. When you're a sibling, you learn a lot from the first child because you can sit back and you can watch the example and say, ooh, I don't want to do that. Like, I just think about my, my little brother. Man, he had it good because he saw all the issues like coming from a long ways away. He could have looked at my life and been like, man, I know how to do this thing now. Uh, do the opposite of whatever Josh did. But or as a younger sibling, you can sit and watch and say, that, that's what I want to do. Look at my older sibling. Look at this favorable outcome that they have found in life. That's what I want to happen. So that's what I'm going to, to do. And I, I bring this up because when it comes to receiving Jesus and thinking about how we'll receive Jesus, we're not the firstborns, right? Like we have examples in scripture that we can look at and we can say, oh, look what they did. I, I want to do that. I want to be like these kids at the end of uh, at, in uh, Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16, who are praising Jesus. Or we can look at it and we can say, ooh, I don't, I don't want to be like these scribes and the priests who miss it. And so this morning, I want us to look at this example and glean from it what we can this morning. My prayer for us this week has been that our hearts would be ready and prepared to receive Christ and to receive our King appropriately on this Palm Sunday because of the examples that we see here in this passage. So look with me, Matthew chapter 21. We'll read verses 1 through 17 together. <clears throat> now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as, or did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on their, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. 
And Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So how should we receive King Jesus this morning? How should we think about him? How should we feel about him? How should we go on living this life now that we come to know the reality of who he is? First, there are three things here. First, we receive him for who he really is not who we want him to be. You're probably familiar with this scene. Jesus comes in riding on a donkey. Uh, Now, it's kind of a strange thing here. Typically, we see Jesus traveling how? Walking or riding in a boat maybe from time to time. But here, we, we see him send his disciples into the city, and he says, go get me a donkey. I'm tired now. I'd, I'd like to ride a donkey, please. And, and they do. And he's like, hey, if anybody sees you stealing their donkey, which that's weird, if anybody sees you stealing their donkey, just tell them the Lord needs it, and that'll be good enough for them. And it is. And so they, they, they bring the, the donkey back to Jesus. He jumps on the donkey. Now, this is really strange. Why would Jesus ride a donkey? He's never done this at any other time recorded in the New, New Testament. Matthew makes it really plain for us why he's doing it like this. Look with me at verses four through five. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus rode this donkey in order to fulfill scripture. By doing this, he's making crystal clear just who he is. And by recording it like this, Matthew is waving a flag for all of us as we read this passage. And he's saying, hey, you need to pay attention. Something's happening here. This took place to fulfill prophecy. God is at work here. Like this is a culmination of a promise of God coming to reality. Don't you remember Zechariah's promise that a king would come and he would bring peace and restoration? That's what's happening And as Jesus approached Jerusalem, the crowds knew exactly what was going on. Now, we don't read about it in Matthew, but we know he had just named or raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. And as he rides in on this donkey, people realize this is the king. He has power over life and death. They had been taught their whole life since they were young children that one day God was going to send them a king. God was going to send a deliverer. God was going to send one to restore. So the crowd welcomed Jesus into the city, rightly thinking of him as this long-awaited king. But there's a a problem here. They really misunderstood his kingly duties. What they expected was for him to come in and to get rid of the Romans. They expected him to come in and do away with all of the, the Gentiles that had been impeding on their life. They expected him to come in and restore Israel to national prominence, but that's not what Jesus came in 
to do. There was lots of exciting, lots of shouting, lots of celebrating. It looked really good on the outside, but on the inside, their reception of Jesus was, was off because they misunderstood why he was there. They thought he was a conqueror and a victor. But the peace and the deliverance and the restoration that Jesus came to bring was not nationalistic peace. It wasn't a removal of the Romans. He came to bring peace to the nation of Israel by bringing peace between us and God. Peace between people and God. Peace between Jew and Gentile. He came not to deliver Israel from Rome, but to deliver mankind from sin and Satan and death. And he came not to restore Israel to political power, but to bring restoration from dead religion. Notice the first thing he, he does in this passage. He, he rides in on a donkey and he goes in and he cleanses the temple. He starts judgment right there on the temple, the people of God, and he's, he's purifying religion. And he came to be crushed on their behalf. Ultimately, Jesus was rejected because he failed to live up to their expectations. See, just, we, we know something's wrong in their hearts here because just a few days later, five days later, he's going to be tried as a criminal in this city that welcomed him so warmly. And he's going to be executed as a criminal on a cross just outside of the city's gates. Something was wrong in the way that they perceived what he had come to do. They wanted Jesus as a king, sure, but they wanted him as a king that would fit the bill of their own design. That caused them to miss it. And from this, I, I think we see a, a gentle warning for us today. As we think about Jesus approaching us, Jesus coming to us, we have to come to grips with the fact, who, who is Jesus really for us? We live in a country that, and in a, in a society in general, that literally is built on the premise that we can have everything our way all the time. Like we can have our life the way we want it all the time. We can have every, our job the way we want it all the time, our family the way we want it all the time. And if we're not careful, we'll slip into thinking that Jesus is joining us in that pursuit. I can have Jesus the way I want him, and he can do the things that I want him to do. We start to think of Jesus as the one who's going to make us happy, make us healthy, make us wealthy, who's going to keep us whole, the one who's going to uphold our values that we prefer the one who's going to give us eternal life and forgiveness, but then leave us alone when it comes to morality. The one who lays no claim on our life and doesn't speak anything about the way we have, uh, about our relationships or the way we spend our money or the way we spend our time. He's a, he's a Jesus that gave me a get out of hell free card. He doesn't make claims on us. But none of those are accurate depictions of who Jesus has come to be for us. As followers of him, we'll have times when things are hard. We'll have times when money is tight. Can I get an amen? We'll have times when relationships are tense. We'll have times when our health fails. We'll have times when our, our family suffers. We may even face times of persecution. And in those moments, if the Jesus that we received is the one who is supposed to keep us happy and healthy and wealthy and make sure all of our relationships are hunky-dory and to put a happy face on us, if that's the Jesus that we received, then we're going to be disappointed. And we're going to be like these crowds who grow upset with him and are happy to walk away from him. And who just a few days later were happy to shout, crucify him. Get him out of here. He, he didn't do what we wanted him to do. He hasn't accomplished what we wanted him to accomplish. Get rid of him. I have no room for him. 
So we must be careful. The Jesus of Palm Sunday certainly bids us to follow him, but he bids us to follow him on his terms as the king who has come to deliver us from sin and death, as the king who has come to call us as his disciples to follow him and to live his way of life so that his name might be made great among the nations. He did not come to do what you want him to do. He did not come to deal with your Romans. He did not come to help you with your finances. Now, it may be his will that, that you have a great life, or it also may be his will that you move to a third world country and are persecuted for your faith for the rest of your life. I don't know which is his will for you, but they could both be part of it. But the Jesus that comes to us on Palm Sunday is one who calls us to the life of discipleship. And let me tell you, he's a much better king than any of the kings that you could have come up with in your head. He offers us so much more than health and wealth and healing and money. So let's joyfully receive him for who he really is, not who we want him to be. Number two, we receive him in repentance and faith, not obstinance or fear. We're told that the crowd's reception of Jesus caused uh, no small uproar. Verse 10, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the question isn't, it's not who is this person as though they're looking at Jesus like, hey, who's that guy? They're saying, who is all of this for? Look at the fanfare. Look at the shouting. Look at the, the praise. This is a parade coming into the city. Who is this? Who is it for? Who's the king? They had been waiting. That word stirred up. It actually means uh, it's used of earthquakes and apocalyptic heaven and earth shaking kind of events. His, his entrance caused quite a scene. So it's safe to say, would you agree with me? The people knew he was there, right? Like they, they were aware of it. And he came in and he went to the temple. So the people in the temple knew he was there, right? One nodding head. There we go. We got a couple more. Perfect. Yes. They knew he was there. This was, this was a huge scene. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He walks into the temple. And he looks around. Surely the fanfare follows him. And he leaves. There would have been shouting when he got there. This is the king. This is him. We're accompanying the king to the temple. This is it. And when he got there, he doesn't like what he sees. He gets there and there are money changers and merchants inside the temple complex. Now, for Passover, tons of people flocked to Jerusalem. Some estimate upwards of a million people would come to Jerusalem for this week-long festival, right? It was not feasible for people to travel with their sacrificial animals for the week. People are coming from long distances. It's just not, not easy to bring an, an animal to sacrifice all the way from your home to Jerusalem. So it was common practice to buy your animal there. Remember, sacrificial animals needed to be unblemished. They needed to be whole. And you couldn't risk having a long, long journey and your animal getting lost or stolen or injured along the way. Like I just got back from vacation with my children and I could hardly keep them from getting lost, stolen, or injured along that path just driving down to Alabama. So I can't imagine trying to carry livestock along with me. And like you can bet, we came back with all of the kids, but like they didn't get stolen, but they certainly got lost once or twice and injured is a definite. 
So it's common practice for them back then to wait until they arrived in Jerusalem to buy their sacrificial animals. Also, there was a temple tax that had to be paid. So they would bring money from their hometown, and they would have to exchange it once they got to Jerusalem because there was only one kind of currency that was accepted for the temple tax. It was a really pure form of silver, a Tyrian shekel. And so they had to come in and exchange the money. And Jesus is not against the fact that business was happening. Jesus knew that it made sense to buy animals in Jerusalem. Jesus knew that they had to trade their money so that they could have the shekel for a temple tax. Jesus was not against that. Jesus was not against profit. What was Jesus against? Well, there were two things going on here that really, really stood out to Jesus and upset him. The first was price gouging. There's evidence from the first century that suggests many of the merchants were abusing the corner on the market that they had. See, these markets used to exist outside of the temple, but they had then been moved into the temple, and now all of a sudden, people are trapped. They have no choice but to pay the the really high prices. Think about food at Disney World, right? Or you go buy popcorn at a movie theater. Right now, AMC is running about $7 for a small popcorn. Like, No wonder people don't go to movies anymore. Or think about, like, we had to drive through Illinois last week. We got in the middle of Illinois. You want to guess what the price of gas is in the middle of Illinois? $4.45 $4.45 a gallon. Why? Because they know they got you. Right? Like, it's a big state. You can't go anywhere else. And nobody drives through Illinois just because. You, you got to go. Right? Like, nobody's there for fun. I'm sorry if you're from Illinois. I got to. So they jack up the prices. Second, they were doing business in the court of the Gentiles. This was the place where the God-fearing Gentiles were allowed to worship. People who were not Israelites but, but loved God and wanted to live a life of devotion to him. This is where they could come into the temple and they could worship. Yet now it is accompanied with the sound of merchants doing business and people bartering over animals and people uh, bickering about exchange rates and, and goats in the background. It's a lot. I wish I had a soundtrack that I could play like in here as we worshiped and be like, ah, here you go, try to listen. Like, try to commune with God with all of this ruckus going on around you. What a great environment. But in both cases, with the price gouging and with the uh, doing business in the court of the Gentiles, those who were lowest on the social totem pole of the temple were the ones who were being harmed by this. It was the poor and it was the foreigner who were being hurt by what's going on here. They were being hindered in their Worship with God. And notice, the vendors and the merchants kept this activity up. They knew Jesus was there. They heard the parade. They heard the proclamations, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. They knew the king was here. And they kept going. We find out from Mark's gospel that actually Jesus walks into the temple. He looks around. He doesn't like what he sees, but he goes back out to Bethany and he spends the night there. And then he actually comes back on Monday and cleanses the temple on Monday, not on Sunday. Matthew smashes this all together because it's one big narrative in his mind. But Mark's, Mark wants to make it explicit. These are two separate happenings. This isn't rageaholic Jesus who gets in there and cleanses the temple because he's really, really angry. This is Jesus who had a night to sleep on it. And he decided, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. So he may have caught the vendors by surprise on the first day. He didn't catch them by surprise on the second day. They just kept on. These were an obstinate people. 
So Jesus runs them out of the temple. Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then Jesus does something remarkable. He begins to heal the blind and the lame. And there's so much symbolism going on here as Jesus is in the temple healing the blind and the lame, right? He's, Isaiah had said that when Messiah comes, the age is going to be marked. This is what Messiah is going to do. Isaiah says, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Then shall the lame leap like a deer. It's really obvious what's going on here. In fact, earlier in the book of Matthew, do you remember when John the Baptist sends one of his disciples to Jesus? And he says, are you the one that we've been waiting for or should we look for another? Right, like are you the Messiah that we've been looking for? Or should, we, should we expect another one? Are you him or are you not? And Jesus doesn't say either way, but he does say this. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. That's as good as a yes from Jesus. Right, like John the Baptist, you, you know what Isaiah promised. You know that the age of the Messiah is going to have blind men seeing and lame men walking. So yeah, the message is clear here. Messiah in Matthew 21 is in the temple doing what Messiah does. And notice the blind, the lame, the sick, they felt safe coming to Jesus. I love this picture. Now, according to rabbinic tradition, not necessarily according to the law, they would not have been permitted to come into the temple. Those who are blind, those who are sick, those who are lame, they would have been viewed as ceremonially unclean. So they would have been kept out of the temple Jesus comes in and he runs off people that shouldn't be in the temple, right? Like he kicks over the pigeon seller's chairs, which is hilarious to me. He drives them out. But then the blind and the lame feel confident in who Jesus is enough that they will break rabbinic tradition and enter into the temple. They have faith. They could have been stricken by fear and held back. But their faith in who Jesus was prompted them to go. And from this contrast with the obstinate merchants and the sick who come to Jesus, we learn both a positive and an, from a, both a positive and a negative example. From the obstinate merchants, we learn that we ought to receive Jesus with repentance. Right? Like they knew the day before that the king had come. They should have shut it down then. They should have realized exactly what they were doing, and they should have said, uh-oh, we gotta, we got to fix this. we got to do something. we got to shut down these shops. we got to quit taking advantage of people. But nope, they kept right on doing it. Why? Because they were obstinate. They should have repented. Next, from the, the sick who were so bold as to come to Jesus, we learn that we receive Jesus in faith of, for who he is for us. Faith that he is good. Faith that he loves us. Faith that he intends us not harm, but good. Faith that we will not be driven away like the merchants, but faith that we will be received. I've known a lot of Christians who, uh, and, and other people who have considered following Jesus actually, who are just riddled with fear. They're afraid that if they come to Jesus, they'll be, they'll be driven away like the wicked. They're afraid of what Jesus will do to them once they get there. But as Jesus draws near to us this morning, I want I want us all to know, be, be confident in this. Jesus is tender and kind. Yes, we have seen his more severe side as he drove the merchants from the temple, but he is love and he is grace. He is mercy. He is abounding in patience. 
And if you come to him in repentance and faith, he will always receive you and he will never drive you away. He welcomes all, no matter how far we think we have fallen. Finally, the third thing we learn from this passage, we receive Jesus with worship as the one true God. The identity of Jesus has been the driving force of this entire passage. From the very beginning, Jesus jumps on a donkey to let you know he is the king that Zechariah promised. Matthew points out that all of these events unfold to fulfill prophecy. Cloaks are thrown thrown onto the road. That is a, a king's welcome. The crowd shouts accolades, Hosanna to the son of David. That is, Hosanna, save us. One who has come as the Davidic king, the one promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the crowd blatantly asks the question, who is it? Who's the king? We want to we know it. Who's, who is he? Where's he at? And Matthew makes sure to record that so that we have to come to terms with that question. Who is this? All of this comes to a fever pitch in verses 15 through 17. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Which is really offensive. Jesus is saying here, have you never read your Bible? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Rather than being moved by the miraculous deeds that Jesus was performing, rather than realizing that he had driven out the wicked merchants, rather than realizing the sinfulness of their own actions, rather than being moved by the the children worshiping their king, they become indignant. They're angry. They're frustrated with Jesus. And they say, Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? The implication is there, Jesus, shut them up. This is blasphemy. You've got to end this talk. Yeah, Jesus, people, people are excited about you. That's great. Your party tricks are cool. But you better quiet these people up. Don't you know what they're saying, calling you the son of David? But instead of bringing this interaction to a, a peaceful close, Jesus decides, you know what? I'm going to dump gasoline on this fire. And so he quotes Psalm 8 two, verse 16. And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read, you big dumb dums, have you never read your Bible? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. If you think Hosanna to the son of David was blasphemy, then let's see how you deal with me taking Psalm 8 verse 2 and applying that to myself. Because Psalm 8 is a, is a song of worship to Yahweh. The name of God used in the Old Testament, the one that emphasizes his eternal being and also his covenant faithfulness. Jesus says, of course, I hear what they're saying. And of course, I'm going to receive praise from children. Don't you know that's what Yahweh does? And with this, Jesus is saying, I'm not, I'm not just the Davidic king promised in the Old Testament. I am the author of every promise in the Old Testament. I am the fulfillment of every promise in the Old Testament. I am the I am. I am the Lord of lords. I am the king of kings. And these children do right to worship me. Not only that, you scribes and priests, you do well to bend the knee and worship me too. 
And then he drops his microphone and he walks away. And he leaves them to deal with the question, what do we do with Jesus? And that's where Matthew stops the narrative for us. And he leaves us to deal with the question, what will we do with Jesus? How should we respond? We can receive him as the the Jesus of our imagination, the genie in the bottle who, if we rub him the right way, he'll do the things we want him to do. Or we can be obstinate towards him. We can just go on living our life as if he doesn't exist and as if we don't know that he's the king and as if he hasn't come near to us in kindness and grace and mercy this morning. We can go on living our life in fear of what Jesus might do to us, figuring ourselves too far gone for his grace and too far gone for his love, and so we just avoid him, move away from him. We can be begrudging like the priest. How dare you make a claim on my life? How dare you tell me how to live? You might be God, but I'm the God of my own world. Or we can receive him for who he really is, the king who has come to deliver us. We can receive him in repentance and faith. We can recognize our fallenness and our brokenness. We can allow him to deal with it and we can, we can trust that we can draw near and be bold because he is good and he loves us. And we can worship him as the one true God. And I want us to see those are two options and there is no third. Ignore him is not an option. The C.S. Lewis quote came to mind this weekend or this week as I was preparing. C.S. Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. This morning, we know who Jesus is. The question is, will we, call, will we fall at his feet and call him Lord and God? Be sure he extends his grace and his mercy and his invitation to follow him in a life of discipleship to everyone in this room today. And one day, he will return. And he won't come as the king riding in peace on a donkey. He will come as the, the king on a war horse. And I, and I want to read this to you to, to paint the, the picture, but I, I don't want it to sound like a threat, but I want us to realize the reality of, of our future, of what is coming. This is what Revelation 19 says. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is, a, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, 
and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when that day comes, every knee will bow either willingly or unwillingly. On Palm Sunday, we remember that right now Jesus is the peaceful king who approaches us in grace and with mercy. He draws us near to him. He offers peace and he bids us to bend the knee willingly and joyfully to receive him for all that he really is for us, to receive him in faith and repentance and to receive him with worship as the one true God. We pray with me as we prepare to worship again.